Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening this week. Oysters in the St. Lucie Estuary in Martin County are responsible for something Lois Frankel supports, reducing the amount of water coming out of Lake Okeechobee this time of year. Frankel is the Democratic Congresswoman representing a district running from Delray Beach north to Riviera Beach from the ocean west to the Everglades. The last time Lake Okeechobee was as low as it is today during this time of year was in 2011. Water restrictions were put in place back then as the lake dropped to about 12 feet in March, and by June it was below 10 feet, historically low. Limits were put on watering lawns. Golf courses had to cut back, and so did farmers and nurseries. The restrictions stayed in place for more than six months until heavy rains in October came and helped fill the lake back up again. While the region now is experiencing dry weather, officially the regional drought status is classified as abnormally dry, The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has been lowering the level of Lake Okeechobee by letting water out to the west, east, and south. And over the weekend, the Corps cut back on the water coming out to the east. We are slightly reducing flows uh, to the St. Lucie estuary uh, in anticipation of oyster spawn. That's Colonel Andrew Kelly. He's commander of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Jacksonville District, which is responsible for managing Lake Okeechobee. We're we're at the lowest level since we've been since 2011, um, so we've, we're, we're, we're at least at this point, um, we, we seem to be on a good trajectory um, to be able to potentially uh, reduce the high volume flows in the summertime or perhaps even prevent them uh, if and when algae becomes present on the lake. Over two of the past three summers, that soupy, stinky, blue-green algae has choked waterways on the east and west coasts of Florida where the canals dump polluted Lake Okeechobee water into the ocean. Heavy rains, hurricanes, and worries over the stability of the Hoover Dyke creating the southern rim of the lake led the Corps to open its gates, letting the water out, spreading the algae that grows on the lake. Now, in February, the Corps increased the amount of water it sends to the west and east, even though it's the dry season. We made the decision to continue um, to try to lower the lake uh, this year um, responsibly. The lake level today, just above 12 feet. It's below the minimum level the Corps usually aims for. That's 12 and a half feet. Dropping much more below 12 feet could risk taking emergency measures such as water restrictions, in order to ensure there's enough drinking water for the region. But Colonel Andrew Kelly, who leads the Corps unit in charge of Lake Okeechobee, isn't worried about that even as the lake drops. We don't see any uh, water supply uh, issues or concerns at this point. I mean, we're we're still at a lake level um, that, that doesn't That doesn't cause us to do anything drastic in terms of that. And and as we manage or as we monitor and manage the the lake level recession, uh, we we certainly think about water supply. So, no, we don't have any concerns at this time. Lake Okeechobee may be a natural feature of the Florida landscape, but politics also come into play here. More than a billion dollars of federal support has been spent to help restore the Everglades and fix the plumbing around the lake. That money, along with other money for the Army Corps of Engineers, starts flowing from the House Appropriations Committee. So does money for transportation projects, like the money Miami-Dade County hopes to secure from the federal government to help untangle traffic. Already, the county is moving forward with a $240 million plan to bring bus rapid transit along the South Dade Busway, running parallel with US-1. The county hopes federal funding will cover about half the tab. 
Water and transportation are just two of the big issues facing South Florida and the regional economy with significant financial firepower from the federal government. We spoke about these with two South Florida members of Congress, one Republican and one Democrat, sitting on one of the most powerful committees in the U.S. House of Representatives, the Appropriations Committee. We will hear from Miami Republican Mario Diaz-Balart on federal money for local transportation projects a little bit later on in this program. But first, back to those St. Lucie oysters, Lake Okeechobee, and Congresswoman Lois Frankel. The oysters like salty water. As spawning season is close, that means less fresh water from Lake Okeechobee in the river. And that's why over the weekend, the Army Corps of Engineers reduced the amount of water flowing out of the lake to the east. Now, the lake level and the core management of Lake Okeechobee may be guided by science, but it has gotten the attention of politicians. Republican Congressman Brian Mast represents the area where the polluted lake waters enter the St. Lucie estuary. He wants the Corps to bring the lake level down to 10 and a half feet before the beginning of wet season in a couple of months. It's something Governor Ron DeSantis supports as well. County commissioners in Broward and Palm Beach counties have criticized the idea because the threat it could pose to areas needing water and drinking water. The debate comes as President Trump has proposed spending $63 million on the Everglades next year, far less than the $200 million Governor Ron DeSantis and others were hoping for from the federal government. The president's overall spending plan cuts the Corps of Engineers' total budget by 31 percent. Where it goes from here will begin with the House Appropriations Subcommittee on Water and Energy, which oversees the Corps' budget. In the world of water, dollars count, and that's where we began when we spoke with Democratic Congresswoman Lois Frankel in her Capitol Hill office last week. I'm going to try to be respectful. Let's say this way, respectfully, I, I reject the president's budget. I think it's a non-starter, and I think it's a non-starter both with Republicans and Democrats. And, and in terms of uh, the water uh, spending Florida has a lot of work to do, Everglades restoration, port dredging, the dike. Uh, so uh, I think we'll have our own ideas. Tell us about some of those ideas. Uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, I know, has worked with the delegation, uh, had requested $200 million for Everglades restoration. I believe the Army Corps said there was about $63 million in the budget proposal received from the White House. How are you going to work to, to try to address that, that difference? Well, let me just say this. Uh, although there's a lot of acrimony up here in Congress, I will say very happily that one of the issues that our Florida delegation has worked together is on Everglades restoration. I see a very, very strong effort in the House to up our funding to get this uh, Everglades, Everglades restoration done. K keeping in mind that Army Corps has always told us they can only do so much work at a time. And so you know, my goal would be to uh, get at least the maximum funding that can meet uh, what the Army Corps can actually do. Is the $200 million request from the governor within reason, do you think, given those restrictions? Well, I think we have to see what, what our budget is and how much money we have al allocated. But I, I know the, the will of many of us on the committee will be to try to do as much as we can. What is your assessment of the management of Lake Okeechobee by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers? That is a, a controversial issue in South Florida. And in Congress, for that matter, a little bit, too. Well, um, to put it in perspective, I was a mayor of West Palm Beach for eight years. 
The worst days of my mayorship was when West Palm Beach was about to run out of water, and I am not exaggerating. We had a periods of time where we had absolute drought, and I remember we were literally within weeks of having no water. Having no water is not just affecting your health and your businesses, but you, you can't fight fires. And so it's very, very scary. So I, I have been, uh, you know, listening to my local folks, uh, West Palm Beach, Palm Beach also uh, uses the same water supply, Palm Beach County, who are dramatically uh, and fiercely opposed to lowering uh, the levels in Lake Okeechobee to, to where some of my colleagues want to see it go. Representative Brian Mast, for instance, has suggested lowering it to 10 and a half feet uh, at the beginning of storm season, which is approaching in, in May and early June, that would be a two-foot drop from the lowest level the Corps of Engineers traditionally holds it at, uh, which is 12 and a half feet. You're shaking your head at that well, 10 and a half I, feet I think number. My, my local, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert in these kinds of things, but I could tell you that my local folks think that could possibly be catastrophic. And I, I really, I understand the concerns and anxiety of folks who live in Morton County. They're trying to avoid uh, the algae breakout that has hurt their water supply and their economy. Uh, but it, it you know, doesn't, to solve one problem and create a greater problem is not the way to go. So I think, uh, fingers crossed, it looks like things are going well this this uh, winter and in terms of their algae outbreak and all that right it tends to yeah. die off yeah. in in the uh, in the wintertime during the dry season it's usually if there's a big uh, storm big rain in yeah. June July not only or, or a hurricane or a hurricane and and obviously not just around Lake Okeechobee but north of Lake Okeechobee in the headwaters of the Everglades uh, Governor Ron DeSantis has also talked about uh, his support for lowering that lake level in May and early June, not keeping it permanently at 10 and a half feet, but aiming for that really low level in anticipation of the wet season. Well, here's what I, you know, my position would be. Whatever is done should be done on real scientific evidence and not on politics. The Corps is in the process of reviewing its manual of kind of how it manages the lake. We've seen the blue-green algae outbreaks in two summers recently. We saw the red tide, which scientists say has been exacerbated by the uh, nutrient-rich water that gets released to the east and the west. How would you like the Corps to go about reassessing its management manual of the lake, given the significant federal investment in Everglades restoration that continues? Well, I've had a lot of experience working with the Army Corps in the last six years, uh, not only on the Everglades restoration, but on the, uh, we have big ports in Florida and the dredging. And part of my experience has been that I feel Congress has not necessarily given the Corps the kinds of resources for the demands that we make. Uh, we have lots of laws and regulations that they have to follow, and then members of Congress get mad when they take the time to do that. Again, I'm going to go back to what I said before, uh, because there's a lot of politics involved right now. Uh, the governor 
Rand and Brian Mass uh, both had at the top of their agenda fighting this green and red algae. And uh, in the end, what I hope and would expect for the Army Corps is that whatever they conclude, it is based on science, on evidence, on facts, and not on political pressure. In your experience, has there been political pressure exerted on the Corps successfully as it relates to your oh, district, yeah. as it relates well, to especially the Lake Okeechobee I, I, management? I would say that uh, I think we see a little a difference uh, politically of, of you know who's in charge. I mean, that's that does de- depend. This, I mean, this governor is, is probably. Uh, I mean, he he made that a big part of his campaign is to, to clean up that algae. I have always found the core to be have a certain amount of independence. That's been my experience. Uh, but with that said, Congress does fund the Army Corps, uh, and the state does contribute to Army Corps projects. So obviously, that can't be ignored. You sit on the appropriations subcommittee that ultimately decides the spending for the Corps of Engineers. What are the considerations uh, now that um, the Democrats are in power in the House and hold the majority in the subcommittee, uh, this appropriations subcommittee, as well as the appropriations committee, and of course the full House of Representatives? What is that going to mean, do you think, in terms of appropriations for the Corps, again, as it relates specifically to its work around South Florida and South Florida water? One thing you have to keep in mind is it's a big country and there's a lot of demands. And, you know, even though there are two members of South Florida that are on the subcommittee, I mean, that's uh, sort of unique. I think that's because of our interest in the issues. But we're in a competition with... uh, you know, hundreds of members of Congress and 50 senators who were trying to bring back uh, uh, resources to their own communities. So that's really, you know, that's, that, is, that is probably a much bigger issue than just the, the local jostling around. It's where the politics and the science <laughs> intersect, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, and also you have to be fair. Listen, you have, you have water issues I mean, you have Flint, Michigan, they can't even drink the water. So, uh, but Army Corps, you know, that does, does big uh, water projects and uh, you have a port dredging and maintenance of channels and which are very important to the economy of the country and including Florida. I mean, the, so there's a competition for funds even in South Florida. You have Port Everglades wants to get uh, f- funded for dredging. That's you know, billions of dollars for our economy. So uh, there's a lot of competition for the dollars. How is that competition shaping up in this appropriation cycle, do you think? It's too early to say. A lot will depend upon uh, how much money we get to spend. The Army Corps really basically selects a few projects every session to move forward. And so uh, I know we'll be lobbying hard to get... uh, Port Everglades dredging funded. We'll be lobbying hard to continue efforts uh, on Everglades restoration. 
speaking with Palm Beach County Congresswoman Lois Frankel. We will hear more from her about energy and addressing climate change later on in the program. But still to come next, finding the federal tax dollars to help untangle traffic in South Florida with the guy who used to be in charge of that congressional checkbook. In all these years, in the years that I chaired it, not once did a project, a transit project from Miami-Dade County reach us. It's clearly a squandered opportunity. Welcome back to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks again for listening and supporting public media. I'm Tom Hudson. You can follow our program on social media. Look for our handle on Twitter, at WLRN. The Lehman Causeway is less than two miles long. It connects Aventura and Sunny Isles Beach, running up and over the intercoastal waterway. It gets its name from William Lehman. He was a Democratic congressman who represented the area for 20 years. For 13 of those years, he was on the House Appropriations Transportation Subcommittee. He was chairman for the last seven of those years. The causeway got his name because he helped secure the federal money to get it built. He also helped get the federal dollars to build the Metro Rail and Metro Mover systems in Miami-Dade County. The Metro Rail Yard, in fact, is named for him. His success in securing federal funds for transportation projects in South Florida is reflected by the projects that share his name. After his retirement, he even wrote a book called Mr. Chairman, the Journal of a Congressional Appropriator. Now, it would be 19 years after Lehman left Congress that another Florida congressman would sit on the House Appropriations Transportation Subcommittee. Miami Republican Mario Diaz-Balart joined the group in 2011, and in 2014, he became chairman, the same position Lehman held. But while Lehman had that top job for seven years, Diaz-Balart was there for just four years. He lost his chairmanship when the Republicans lost the majority of the House of Representatives. Today, Diaz-Balart is the highest-ranking Republican in the group at a time when local governments are increasingly looking to the federal government for transportation money to help alleviate traffic tie-ups. Miami-Dade County is asking for about $100 million to help pay to build bus rapid transit along the South Dade Busway. That's the first of the county's six smart plan public transit routes it wants to build. In December, the county's transportation board okayed the idea to build an elevated train line along Northwest 27th Avenue to the Broward County line. It still has to figure out the design and how to find the funding. Now, this is just one of the projects Diaz-Balart may wind up seeing in his role on the Transportation Spending Subcommittee in the House. We spoke with him about that role in his Capitol Hill office last week. As the ranking member on the appropriations for transportation, uh, you've been successful in securing funds for seaports over the years, no doubt about it. As you look forward, though, how are you prioritizing the need of transportation funding into South Florida as you're balancing the request from the SMART plan, for instance, for Miami-Dade County and other regional transportation authorities that are asking for dollars? Yeah, one of my frustrations, look, I mean, one of the things that that has, I think, you know, been pretty widely reported um, by the press. I've been pretty effective at bringing back money to South Florida. Um, I will tell you that one of my frustrations is being in a position to be helpful. And I, I was chairing, and now I'm ranking member. Obviously, there's a big difference between being chairman and ranking member. Was it a squandered opportunity then for well, local transportation my, groups? Yeah, one of my frustrations is that um, in, in all these years, in the years that I chaired it, not once did a project a transit project from Miami-Dade County reach us. 
which I think is is a yeah, it's clearly a squandered opportunity. You know, time after time, I've been able to bring back you know Everglades restoration money for God's sake. But here we are now. Uh, bus rapid transit has been planned for two hundred forty million dollars in the right. South Busway. They're looking at uh, perhaps building an elevated train up uh, Northwest 27th Avenue. There's talk about reviving the Bay Link and again, getting people to and from Miami right. Beach with public transportation. Right. There's all this talk and all these studies. Well, there's the South, the bus rapid transit is, is a reality. The, that one is starting to become a reality, which I'm very happy about. I would have liked it to have been done years ago. They're asking for about $100 million in federal funds. They're still in the process. Um, and by the way, they're still in the process. As a matter of fact, I've been in touch with, uh, with the local uh, community, with, with the, the county, about you know how they're still, I know that the federal government is still asking for more documentation, but at least that one is starting to move. But, um, but yeah, the, the, you know, one of my frustrations, I've, I've said this a million times, you've heard me say it a million times, I've said it to them privately, publicly, is the fact that you know, we, we, I'm in a position to be helpful. Uh, and I chaired the committee for a number of years, and in all that, in all that time, uh, Miami-Dade County never sent me a project. Has the environment of funding and where federal dollars are in the capital stack as you try to cobble together funding grants mm -hmm. from the federal government, state government, local tax revenue, as Miami-Dade County and others are looking to cobble together this kind of uh, financial uh, a package, has that changed in terms of where the federal dollars come in? Yeah, I mean, look, we were blessed, uh, you know, luckily. We, for the last two years, uh, for the 18 and 19 appropriation cycle, where, again, I was chairing it, um, that subcommittee that I chaired got a very, very hefty allocation. And so how does that work? The, the, you know, you have a number that, of, for discretionary spending. About half of it, as you know, goes for defense. If you actually include defense and and uh, public safety and national security spending, that's about 70% of discretionary. So that other 30%, you in essence have to split it up between the remaining subcommittees. The last two years in particular, um, because of the, the chairman of the full committee, he gave us a very, very healthy allocation. Last year, local and state governments asked for a total of $11 billion from a federal money grant program for local transportation projects. $1.5 billion was handed out, including $9.5 million to expand two existing parking lots along the South Dade Busway. President Trump's proposed budget release last week cuts this annual grant money available by 40 percent. Back to our interview now with Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart. So now that Dade County has these projects, uh, has at least the bus rapid transit project right. literally in the pipeline and is talking seriously about elevated train on Northwest 27th Avenue, what is the funding environment that they're well, we'll going to find? We'll see. We had, we had a couple of years of, because of the very strong allocation that, that I was able to get from the chairman of the full committee, we had a great opportunity. The, 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 the committee chairman now, uh, who was the ranking member while I chaired it, is, is, a, is a gentleman, uh, he's a friend, he's a, he's a trusted friend. We don't agree on everything, but we trust each other and we can have real serious, frank conversations. I feel really good about his leadership. Uh, and so it's a, it's a good partnership. Now, what we don't know is what allocation we're gonna have. And a couple of challenges. Number one is we're back to sequester. If there isn't a, a, a remember, sequester has been the law of the land for a number of years. This now. is the fiscal cliff from so many years ago. It's, it's the fiscal, but it's the law. And so what has happened for four years is we had a two-year deal, temporary two-year deal, um, that allowed us to move forward the appropriations bills. Then we had, for the last two years, we had another separate two-year deal. We're, unless there's another deal, we're back to sequester. Yeah. 
as you're familiar with the kinds of programs that were able to secure federal funding, local programs, how does, as you understand the Miami-Dade uh, SMART plan, measure up to those plans historically that have been successful in winning, winning federal funding? Um, it depends on whether the, because the, remember, the federal government will, will do our part, and I'm in a position to be helpful, thank God, for capital. But, but the local community has to show that obviously they have their part of, of you know, their matching part of capital. But equally as important that they can then run them and they can afford to run them in future years. And so that's why I thought the, the logical one, the first one was this bus tr uh, rapid transit in South Dade. I think that one is going to become a reality if it finally clears all the hurdles. I'm hoping that I'll still be in a position to be helpful. And I hope that I'll be in a position to be helpful. Uh, maybe I should say I trust that I'll be in a position to be helpful. As to the other parts of it, I think it remains to be seen as to, again, how viable they are. What are the actual plans? Remember, the county is still kind of struggling with, with some of those. Uh, I would tell you that, again, um, the sad part is that while I chaired it, finding two or $300 million, I could have done. Um, will I be able to? I have great confidence in the chairman, who's a friend, as I told you. Uh, we work very closely together, but I'm not chairing it anymore. And number two is, he or I don't know what the allocation is going to be for the next two years. Speaking with Miami Republican Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart last week. Now, he started our conversation about federal transportation funding by talking about money for ports that he helped secure at the tail end of the Republican-controlled Congress last year. That includes money earmarked for the 15 busiest container ports in the country. Two of those happen to be in South Florida, Port Everglades in Fort Lauderdale and Port Miami. Now, still to come, Palm Beach County Democrat Lois Frankel on her party's debate over the Green Deal and its goal for 100% renewable, zero-emission power in a decade. Put it this way, it has my support in concept. I may not agree with every detail, but I think it's very important for us to start really dealing with the issue. We're back on the Sunshine Economy here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening this week. You can catch up on all of our previous Sunshine Economy programs by searching the term Sunshine Economy on iTunes to find all of our podcasts. Lois Frankel calls the proposed Green New Deal idealistic. Now, the Green New Deal is a resolution for now, not a list of specific actions or regulations to address climate change. First-term Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York is behind the effort that combines energy generation goals with other ideas like a guaranteed job and guaranteed high-quality health care. Ninety Democrats have joined the resolution so far as co-sponsors, but not Frankel. Her congressional district runs almost the entire coastline of Palm Beach County. She is certainly familiar with the threat of climate change. She also sits on the House Appropriations Energy Subcommittee, which helps decide funding for the Department of Energy. We can uh, booster our economy, create all kinds of new jobs all over the country, uh, and try to get our carbon emissions down, which will make life healthier and safer. This Green Deal resolution calls for 100% of the power in the United States through clean, renewable, zero emission energy sources in 10 years. 
you're raising your eyebrows. Well, I think it's idealistic. Would it be great if, if we could do it? Uh, I, I, I think it's an, it's an idealistic statement, and I think the point of it is to make sure, make it part of our daily conversation, and there have to be efforts in that direction, uh, whether or not you know we're going to get there, or even should we get there 100%, uh, I think, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is this. Our country has to do a lot more to uh, get the carbon emissions down. Uh, we see our weather changes for sure. Just go to Miami Beach. I understand there's a little flooding down there. And uh, so there's a lot for us to do together without arguing whether or not it's going to be 100% or 90% or 80%. I mean, we're not even near any of that right now. So do you think that that kind of language in this resolution just is off-putting for that kind of more meaningful debate about policy and actions that could be taken? Well, there's, there's, so, there's so much discussion and proposals. I don't know why we should be fixated on, on a few words in, in a resolution. We all, I, I think it's better to say, hey, uh, these folks are on to the right concept of of dealing with climate change because it's going to affect our lives, uh, children's lives, not just here but all over the world. Does the resolution have your support? I don't think you're a co-sponsor well, of it. Well, you know, we're looking at it. It has, let's put it this way, it has my support in concept. I may not agree with every detail, but I think it's very important for us to start really dealing with the issue. There has been an effort in Congress that uh, has discussed carbon taxing carbon fees. Mm -hmm. uh, it has been proposed by members of the delegation of Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, what are your thoughts about going toward a policy of putting a price on carbon uh, in the effort to address climate change, carbon emissions, and usage of energy? Well, I know it became a firestorm of discussion last time Democrats were in the majority. I do think folks are taking climate change much more seriously now. Uh, I'm going to uh, hesitate in, in giving you a plan of action uh, only because I think we, we have a new climate committee. I know our Energy and Commerce Committee is also taking up climate change. I know our energy subcommittee, we've now had a couple of uh, subcommittee meetings just on these kinds of issues. So I would like to wait and see what some of the recommendations are that come out of these committees. Speaking last week with Palm Beach County Democratic Congresswoman Lois Frankel in her Capitol Hill office. Now still to come, we turn our attention to the issue of Venezuela, spending more money to help and the options on the table for the United States. Venezuela was once a very rich country it would benefit not just them, but us and the whole region to help them try to regain a stable economy.
Welcome back to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks again for listening. I'm Tom Hudson. There are at least four bills that have been introduced on Capitol Hill in Washington dealing with the crisis in Venezuela. They range from extending temporary protection status to Venezuelans emigrating to America to a sevenfold increase in humanitarian aid directed at Venezuelans. We spoke about the options the United States has with Democratic Congresswoman Lois Frankel as the crisis in Venezuela deepens. She's a member of the House Appropriations Foreign Operations Subcommittee. Do you support the current strategy by the administration uh, as it relates to Venezuela? Well, I always like to be respectful. Listen, I do think this. What's going on in Venezuela is horrific. People are starving. Now they don't have electricity. They're fleeing to many other countries. It's a complete humane disaster. And something's got to give. They have a head of their country who is corrupt, dictator. There needs to be uh, free elections there. But there needs to be immediately humanitarian support, which is very, di- it's very difficult to, to get it there now. I think we have about 200,000 Venezuelans now in Florida. Now, some of them have been here for many, many years. So we have a new group coming over that's going to be an effort to try to get them temporary protective status. There will be legislation. Do you support offering temporary protected status for Venezuelans? Yes, I do. There's one legislative proposal that... Uh, aims to increase humanitarian aid to Venezuela from the current $20 million what the administration has provided for to $150 million. That's That's Debbie Wasserman Schultz legislation that either I've signed on to or will sign on to. Yes, that's correct. You support that kind of increase in humanitarian aid? Yes, I do. I keep in mind it's not just, when I say just, I mean, there's immediate humanitarian crisis in that people... Uh, are starving, there's violence, and think about the generation of children that we are about to lose because if children are not in school. You know, first of all, a starving child is not doesn't get educated. A child that is, obviously is not in school. I mean, you, you, you're threatened, just like we saw in Syria and Yemen, and now Venezuela, you're, you have this threat of a generation of children just being lost. So, you know, you have to try to move quickly, but, uh, you know, there's a, I mean, I, I know some people talk about military action. I don't think we're there, nor do I know that it, that it would be right for us to do that. But we have to, in every way possible, put pressure on the Venezuelan government. I do think the Trump administration is trying to do that, is is put pressure in every way possible to try to get a, cha- a, a fair election there. Are you satisfied with the international support that has rallied around the opposition forces? And for that matter, kind of what the administration has done to try to uh, uh, garner more international support, uh, both within the region as well as outside? Well, the, you know, the international support is split because I, I, I believe Russia and China, they're pretty uh, big players in this world. 
So they support the current Venezuelan administration. Uh, I think our efforts have to be through the, you know, through the UN, and although, although China and Russia are big players there, and just working with, our, with international partners. What more would you like to see the administration do? Um, the, the Trump administration has been very clear not to take the potential military intervention off the table. They, they've continued to be very clear that that remains an option, although just an option at this point. You mentioned uh, you, you uh, don't think that that is right at this point, but should that be removed from the, uh, uh, from the list of options that the United States has as it aims for regime change there? That is one of the most difficult questions that you are asking because, you know, I will admit, I look back at Syria where a lot of people, folks resisted United States intervention. I don't know if that was correct. Look what happened in Syria. President Obama, for instance, talked about a red line being chemical weapons. There's lots of evidence that chemical weapons were used, and there was no direct United States military action. So, you know, I think we waited way too long to do anything about Yemen. We're still waiting too long. But I'm using this as an analogy, because we have this discussion, uh, then I could tell you, then I could point to Iraq where we went in to do regime change and it was like a boomerang to did it succeed. I mean, there's legitimate conversation on both sides about whether you should be involved in regime change. I mean, there's more examples in history where we sort of where we were involved with regime change, you may not know about it, maybe Iran might be an example, but uh, it just didn't seem to go too well. On the other hand, it's very hard to watch and to know about the kind of human suffering. So uh, I would just say that for now, uh, the administration needs to put every kind of pressure uh, for free election. We, we should not necessarily choose who should we should not choose who the people elect, but uh, this is a, a, a corrupt uh, dictator who's causing great harm. What are some of the contemporary lessons that you draw upon as you look at the Venezuelan situation? Uh, you've mentioned the crisis in Syria, the crisis in Yemen, um, certainly the, the ongoing uh, military presence in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, going on almost 20 years now. But what are the lessons that you're drawing as you look through kind of what the options are and your role as a United States representative? Well, let me just say, you know, I've been on Foreign Affairs Committee. I was on for six years. I'm now on the Foreign Ops Subcommittee, which we do fund the foreign issues. And I've traveled all over the world. I mean, I have been to, on to a lot of these war zones, and I've been... been to Iraq and Afghanistan. I was, you know, in Jordan where they were dealing with the refugees from Syria. Uh, I've been to Colombia. I mean, I've been I've been to a lot of these places. Uh, to Egypt after they after the overthrow of the 
the last regime. I cannot give you a clear answer of what to do because I think my what I'm, the lesson I'm learning is uh, it's very when you see horribly horrible things happening to humanity. Uh, first of all, I don't think we can ignore it. We cannot be a lone player in this world. We have to work with partners. That's the best way to do it, to work with partners. As you look at the challenge in Venezuela, look beyond kind of the current mm -hmm. uh, issues. What role would you like to see the United States play in what may come next in a best case scenario okay. for Venezuela as it relates to your work with foreign affairs? I mean, what's happening in Venezuela has happened in other parts of the world. I think what makes it different is that uh, is a closer neighbor, and we have a lot of refugees coming from Venezuela. So uh, it has to have our attention, not just from a humanitarian point of view, which it should, but from a practical point of view. Uh, because And it's not only affecting uh, us directly, but a lot of our uh, neighbors that also accepting refugees. So I would just see, say, uh, if they could get, if they could get a stable regime, that we have to work with them uh, from a resource point of view to help them get back to the country. I mean, Venezuela was once a very wealthy, a very rich country, and so I think uh, it would uh, benefit not just them, but us and the whole region to help them try to regain a, a stable economy. Palm Beach County Democratic Congresswoman Lois Frankel. Now still to come, one of the Trump administration's Capitol Hill point persons on Venezuela, Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart. I have been exceedingly pleased with the policy of this administration of, of first taking it seriously, pressuring it in every possible way, uh, economically and diplomatically. back on the Sunshine Economy here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. It's been almost two months now since President Trump officially recognized Juan Guaido as interim president of Venezuela. And it's been three weeks since Vice President Mike Pence went to Colombia to meet Guaido, announce a new $56 million aid package for the region, and deliver this message. The day is coming soon when Venezuela's long nightmare will end. And Venezuela will once more be free. Miami Republican Mario Diaz-Balart has helped shape the Trump administration's strategy with Venezuela. We spoke with Diaz-Balart last week in his Capitol Hill office. Was that a mistake for the vice president to use that kind of language? I don't think so. I think, I think you have an illegitimate regime, uh, a murderous, narco-trafficking illegitimate regime. Uh, that is uh, ally of the worst abusers of human rights and of the you know of the worst players in this world, whether it's Assad or Castro or by the way even some terrorist groups in the Middle East, and so I I have been exceedingly pleased with the policy of this administration of, of first taking it seriously, 
pressuring it in every possible way, uh, economically and diplomatically. So I have been very, very pleased with the policy. You have to remember that it's now been a, a matter of weeks since the interim government has been recognized by the United States and, and most, most democracies in the hemisphere. By the way, also others like the EU. It's because of U.S. leadership we're starting to see now that um, hundreds of members of the of the uh, Venezuelan military have abandoned the illegitimate uh, regime of Maduro. Um, you still have 20 to 25,000 Cuban troops there, uh, intelligence services and, fo and others like that in Cuba. Do you think that timeline expectation remains, though, um, this soon expectation that yes. Maduro would leave I, 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 or I be think, out? I think we have to do everything uh, humanly possible for the national security interests of the United States and for this hemisphere and for the people of Venezuela uh, to continue to pressure. And I think, uh, I do believe that the days of, of Maduro are numbered. Now, I shouldn't say days. Is it days? Is it weeks? Is it months? But I just think that that's a regime that's falling apart. And I think the U.S. leadership has been, frankly, instrumental and has been very positive. Regarding the standoff over the last couple of weeks on humanitarian aid and the yeah. border with Colombia, uh, there's video that surfaced that has shown that uh, opposition forces may have started uh, a fire of, uh, that that uh, sent the truck on fire that included the humanitarian aid. would look like to be a Molotov cocktail as the wick kind of uh, flew off. But does that question any of your uh, uh, support for the opposition or, for, for that matter, their intent with getting the aid in versus no. creating a confrontation with the forces? No. no. The only reason, look, you're, you're dealing with Venezuela that, you know, 20 years ago was the wealthiest country in South America that now, because of this regime, has become a poor country. It is a larger refugee crisis than the Syrian refugee crisis. Think about that. I mean, it's, it's hard to believe in, in, in this hemisphere. It is a national security threat to the United States. It is a security threat to all of the neighboring countries, whether it's Colombia and Brazil and all of the others in the region. Stopping food and medicine is one of the crimes against humanity. And nobody can deny that what the Maduro regime did and continues to do is withholding and stopping humanitarian aid from coming into the country. What else do we need to know? They're involved in denying basic humanitarian aid, whether it's food or medicine, to its own people. And so that's all that I need to know. And I also know that there is an, uh, an interim constitutional temporary president uh, recognized by 50 democracies around the world, including its neighbors, um, who is trying to peacefully um, bring democracy. And remember, what President Guaido says and what their constitutional says is that it's not that President Guaido is going to be the president, it's he's going to be president long enough so he can have call for new elections. That is the reality, and trying to, um, to within the confusion of things, for some that are trying to blame the opposition for the atrocities that have been committed now for two decades, almost two decades, by this terrorist, narco-terrorist regime is something that is unacceptable. $20 million in humanitarian aid what is what's been pledged by the United States. There's been talk within the House of increasing that to $150 million. The president's budget for the next fiscal year just came out. What would you like to see that number at? Yeah, it, it's going to have to be a lot more than 20. Um, I can't tell you that I, that I can right now uh, with great confidence tell you what the specific number is. That number has to rise um, because we have a serious humanitarian crisis. But the most important thing here is that we have an illegitimate government in Venezuela 
recognize as a thug. And I thank the administration for what they're doing, but I'm going to continue to work with them and pressure if need be to make sure that we do more uh, in every way possible, diplomatically and economically, to isolate that regime, to pressure that regime, and to help the legitimate constitutional provisional regime of President Guaido. That's Miami Republican Congressman Mario Diaz-Blart speaking with us last week. Pilar Uribe is our technical director. Katie Lepre is our engagement producer. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening.